Every company that wants to expand into a new market needs to look for some point of leverage. You're listening to B2B Revenue Acceleration, a podcast dedicated to helping software executives stay on the cutting edge of sales and marketing in their industry. Let's get into the show. Hi, welcome to B2B Revenue Acceleration. My name is Aurélien Mottier, and I'm here today with Patrick Conte. How are you, Patrick, today? Very good. Very good, Aurelian. Nice to be here with you. Good. So, Patrick, today we want to speak about establishing a U.S. technology vendor in Europe. And before we go into the details of your thoughts and comments and experience around that, can you please tell us a little bit more, first of all, about yourself, but also about HITRUST, the company that you represent at the moment? Sure. So HITRUST is a cybersecurity company based in Silicon Valley here in California. And I like to tell people where we fit in the overall scheme of things as it relates to cybersecurity, because there are a lot of different technologies, a lot of companies, a lot of different uh, ideas about what constitutes cybersecurity. And so there are really three main categories of cybersecurity. There's the network security, which is what most people think of when they think of cybersecurity. And really, is network security is really all about keeping the bad guys off of your network or containing them when they get on your network. It gets a lot of investment money, uh, probably has the most bad press or good press as the case may be because the bad guys keep trying to breach the, you know, the network. And uh, so it's, it's a very important part of cyber, but it's not us. The second part of cybersecurity or the second big category is endpoint security, which has been around for a long time, even before the, the whole security era. But for a long time, it was really just antivirus for your laptop or, or you know, uh, other devices. Uh, but now it includes IoT, it includes configuration management, it includes uh, mobile device management and, and mobile content security. So it's also a very, very important part of, of cyber, uh, but it's also not us. So the third category is cloud, and that's where yeah. we play. So, okay. so Hydrus is focused on cybersecurity, but we're specifically focused in, in providing cybersecurity in, in cloud environments. And cloud could be private cloud, it could be public cloud, or it could be the hybrid environment. And there are two things that we, only two things that we really spend our time on and, and develop our products for. The first one is protecting the cloud workload. The cloud workload is basically the VM that has all the critical data in it for the, you know, for the company or, or whatever the case may be, and whatever the organization is. So the workload is the most important thing, especially in today's data protection era that we all live in with GDPR and other data protection uh, legislation that's out there. So protect the workload. And we do this by encrypting it and also by geofencing it, meaning that we can make that workload stay where you want it to stay. And then the second thing that we do is lock down the virtual infrastructure that sits underneath the cloud. And what I mean by this, this might sound a little bit esoteric, but what I mean by that is Underneath every cloud are virtual servers, storage, network, and people. Uh, we call them admins or virtual admins or cloud admins. And actually at the cloud admin is where two-thirds of all the breaches happen. So what we do is we lock that down with a whole package of access controls and, and other capabilities that are very unique. So those are the two things we focus on, protecting the workload and locking down the virtual infrastructure. So that's the high trust part, and I probably spent a little bit too long on that. But uh, basically, my job is to establish high trust in areas outside of North America, because okay. for the longest time, the company was really focused in the U.S. and maybe to a lesser degree in Canada. 
And uh, since I've joined the company a couple of years ago, we made the decision to, to provide a global footprint for Hytrust and try to help customers who are headquartered outside of North America. Okay. That sounds, that sounds really good. And thanks for that. I mean, that, that was a very, uh, very comprehensive understanding of, uh, of the value proposition, of, uh, which we obviously love because we, we, we've done a, a fair amount of work with you guys. So that, that's, that's very useful. Thank you very much, Pat. In terms of the conversation, kind of coming back to the point that we want to discuss today, I was, I was particularly interested to invite you to join the podcast because obviously you, you are American, you are from the Bay Area. But I know from the work we've done together that you have spent a lot of time, not only in Europe, but also in Asia and, and building up the, the business from scratch. And really what I'm interested to collect today and, and the, the topic that I want to speak to you about is, is the journey of an American company or, or an American individual, yourself, if you will, in that process of understanding the local markets, where do you start, some of the challenges you came along the way. So I appreciate there is lots of things. We don't want to dig into too much details about all the, the, the issues, the issues and um, the problem that you come across. But, but really what I'm interested to understand is, is your perspective from your American background and your knowledge of the American market and kind of assessing the difficulties or the, the differences between your local market and the markets in which you, you are now successful in, but in which you had to, to start from scratch. So maybe we should start by, if you could give us some positive and negatives of that expansion in Europe from an A-level perspective, Pat, would that, would that work for you? Yeah, yeah, that's fine. You know, we as a company, we have to look for, and every company that wants to expand into a new market needs to look for some point of leverage. Right, you want something that helps you lift more than your own weight. Otherwise, you know, you have to either hire a lot of salespeople or you're gonna have a very small funnel and you're gonna be very, you know, very laser focused on only a couple of things. And and either one of those leads you to uh, a situation where you know you, your odds of a big success are not very good. So you have to find something that is some some different ways that will help you lift more than your own weight. And that's usually comes in the form of some type of a reseller channel could potentially be a strategic partnership, you know, something where a small company partners with a bigger company, and then you get the benefit of uh, the bigger company's relationships. So, you know, a kind of business development type. It could be an OEM situation where you actually sell your products through a bigger company, and maybe that company even brands your product. So there are these different, uh, different paths. I think that the least leverage comes from building a large sales force and uh, you know, immediately trying to sell direct into uh, into European or even Asian markets because companies outside the U.S. want to buy from somebody that's local. They want to buy, for the most part, they want to buy from somebody that is uh, you know that's that's in country uh, that's um, you know that already has uh, maybe that they already have a trusted buy sell relationship with, so they don't have to renegotiate terms and conditions, etc. So again. Yeah. You know, there are good reasons for finding that leverage and, and w- w- in, in whichever it comes from. So that, that's interesting, Pat, because we always talk about the chicken and the egg. So we, we, when we engage with, with U.S. startups that are looking at expanding their market in, a, in, in Europe, they always ask us the questions, hey, should I start by recruiting someone on the ground or should I start by building up a channel? And, and, and to be honest with you, the answer that we give them is you should do a bit of both and you should do it almost at the same time because the channel is important. The channel will help you potentially shorten your sales cycles 
because you may find a reseller or someone who's got a relationship with that end user. And because mm-hmm. they are referenced with the end user, as you mentioned, they've got the term and condition and all that. You can save six months of sales cycles, which is fantastic. But so our recommendation is always to do a little bit of both at the same time. How did you go about it with iTrust? Well, let me comment on what you said, because I agree with you. You really, I, I don't think you can only do one. But even if you only have one person, they're going to have to find some way to balance their time. And the reason for that is the channel, even if they share your view on the marketplace and the technology, et cetera, they need to be shown that there's money or else they're not going to, they're not, they're not going to invest. They're not going to invest their time. They're not going to invest their, you know, their people's knowledge because they're for profit organizations just the same way that you are. So you have to show them some, the path to money. And the way you do that is, you, you go and you talk to the customers first. You find the anchor customers. And in this way, especially for a company like HITRUST that had success in North America, you look at the cut, you look at the companies that are similar to the ones that we had success with, uh, with some exceptions, but for the most part, for example, financial services, uh, we did very well in the United States with that. Government, we did very well in the United States with that. Now, you know, financial services are a little faster. Time to uh, time to value. Government is always a very long time to value, but um, uh, but typically when those deals start to happen, then they're very large. And then healthcare in the United States is something that we we did very well. Not really a big opportunity in outside the U.S. because of all the socialized medicine. However, there are there are more and more private doctor groups and, and things like that that and big hospitals and and other things that need our expertise in helping to lock down the infrastructure for healthcare the same way we can for financial and for, and for government. So there is some market there and, and there are certainly some groups that need our help, but even, and even you could think of life sciences like uh, pharmaceuticals and, um, and medical devices. But in looking at, uh, for example, Europe, we had to look at some other vertical markets, right? We had, we, we had to be pragmatic about it. You know, in Europe, it isn't just as in the U.S., we could live on just financial services, government and healthcare. But in, in Europe, we really had to, we had to look at uh, manufacturing, transportation, and retail, because those are still very, very strong markets that don't have incumbent vendors that do the things that we do. So, so that's one of the mm-hmm. things that we did is we shifted our focus a little bit to add uh, markets that were specific to the geography. And the other thing that we tried to do was to uh, focus down on not covering the entire continent, you know, multiple continents, right? You know, the EMEA theater that many companies call it is the entire, you know, continent of Europe. It's the continent of Africa and it's, you know, a big chunk of, of the Middle East, you know, basically the Gulf region and, and Northern Africa. So you can't cover all that, especially when you're just getting started. So you have to have primary markets and secondary markets. And in those secondary markets, you can only be opportunistic. You can't be strategic meaning you can't really be proactive about building channels there. You have to focus on your, your primary markets first, the ones that are going to return on your investment faster or the ones you believe that you will return on your investment faster. So those are some of the, those are some of the things that we, we employed or some of the thoughts that we employed when we entered the market. And I would say that, you know, I believe we were right on most of them, but some of them, some of them uh, you know, took longer than maybe we would, we would have liked uh, for them too. So, but that's what we did. Okay, that's very interesting. And out of all that, which was your biggest challenge? What is the thing that you found the most 
difficult to overcome or the most challenging from doing business in North America to, to doing business in Europe? Yeah, there are a couple of things. I don't know which one's the biggest, but I'll tell you one big one and then maybe I'll tell you another one. So one big one is finding reseller partners that believe the same way that HITRUST does. And here's what I mean by that. So I believe that a channel partnership in many ways has nothing to do with the technology itself. I mean, technology is important, but I believe that a successful channel partnership is really based on kind of a balance sheet approach between you and the partner. And Mm -hmm. there are really three things that the partner needs and the vendor has to do all of those things or else you can't have a partnership. And the partner has to do three things. And uh, if they don't, then, then the vendor can't have a good partnership with them. And so here's, so if you think about things sort of on in this, uh, this balance sheet approach, on one side, what does the partner need? The partner needs three things. You know, when everything else fails, the partner needs three things. He needs you to be able to uphold his margin structure because all resellers do business on margin. And that at the end of yeah. the year, that's what the owners pay themselves on. You're a small company yourself. I'm sure that the, the, the margins on your business, is not just the top line, it's more importantly, it's the margin, right? So even for our company, you run your business on the margin, not on the top line. So number one, you have to uphold the margin structure of that company. You can't ask them to take less margin than is normal. Second thing is you have to give them something new and cool to talk to the customer about. That's where the technology comes in, but it doesn't matter what that is, that you just need to give them something that uh, that holds holds water with the customer so that they can walk in and say, I've got something really great and you need to see it. The yep. third thing is you've got to give them a way that they can that they can actually provide services around your product. And the reason that this is so important is because they make two to three times the margin on services than they do on software and hardware. So mm-hmm. if you give them those three things, then you can, or if you if you make those available to them in the partnership, then you've you've covered off the things that you have, you know, the foundational things you have to do. Yeah. So that's one thing. The flip side is for a company like Hytrust, a company not in the marketplace yet, just getting into the market, there are three things we need from our partner. One is we need a wider funnel. And that is we need them to go talk to customers that would take us a long time to find. It's one of the reasons why we engage with you, Aurelian, and your organizations, because we need to widen our funnel very, very quickly, which we were able to do. But the partner can help you do that with customers that he already knows. So widen the funnel, number one. Number two, shorten the sales cycle. And this is where at the beginning of the sales cycle, the customer doesn't know you. But if a trusted advisor comes in, you know, the partner as a trusted advisor comes in and says, I've got something really great. You need to see it. I've never steered you wrong before. That really takes a lot of the education part out of the front part of the sales cycle that then I don't have to deal with because the, the end customer trusts the, the reseller. The third thing that we need are feet on the street, right? We need people besides my own people talking about the product, um, you know, uh, talking to customers about it, possibly even providing services and support or the ability to demonstrate the product. So that's the leverage that comes from more people, right? So if if we get the three things we need and they get the three things they need, then you, you, know, you have the basis for a good partnership. But there's one other thing that's very important. So those things are, are great and you can get a customer or a partner to agree to them, but the partner has to 
believe themselves to be the type of partner whose responsibility it is to bring the new innovative technology to their customers. And this is a very, seems like a fine point, but it's not. Many partners only want to sell the tried and the true, right? You know, the the things that are easy, the things that are very well known by their customers uh, and the things that are already being asked for. They don't Mm -hmm. see themselves as bringing the new things, but some partners do. And those are the ones that you need, especially if you're a new vendor coming into a marketplace. You need people that see things the same way that you do. I kind of call this sort of um, evangelist partner. So number one hard thing about uh, entering a market is finding those guys because you have to look for them just like uh, you have to look for salespeople and other partners. So that was that was one of the main things. And I would say the second main thing that was difficult for us as we entered the market was because we really had no presence at all. Uh, we had to establish presence with our strategic partners, especially Intel and VMware, where they really didn't know us. And they knew us in the U.S. and they knew us from a headquarter basis, but in the field, they didn't know us at all. So it's taken a long time to you know, find the right people that we could talk to there that understood our mission, understood their own mission, and how we would fit into it in the ecosystem. And so mm-hmm. I would say that's just been roll up the sleeves kind of spade work, uh, if you yep. will. So those are the two things I would say that have been the most difficult as far as uh, getting, getting going, uh, the biggest challenges we've found in expanding in Europe. Okay, so 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 would you say then, Pat, that you you see a you see a difference in the way the U.S. channel is operating versus the European channel, or, or was it just a question of building up this relationship at the beginning with with the European partners? I think it was a matter of first of all finding the partners that that felt the same way that we did, uh, because you never know. You have to cast your net very wide and yeah. talk to a lot. You know, talk to a lot of talk to a lot of people. As the saying goes, kiss a lot of frogs. And so you have to talk to, you know, a lot, a lot of partners will approach you, especially if, you know, they see you at a show or whatever, but they, a lot of them will waste your time. And so you need to, you need to find out quickly, are they the evangelist that will help you spread the word about your product? Or are they really looking for uh, an, an easy sale? Because no startup company, no young technology company, no private company is going to have something that is so easy that it's just going to fly off the shelves. And if it's that easy, then you don't even need a channel. You can just sell it through a retailer or uh, you know some type of uh, you know some type of, uh, of direct uh, marketing or, or you know something like that. So it's always going to be some real work, rolling up the sleeves and going and finding those customers that you can help. I sort of think about this in that way, right? You have to seek out those customers that that need you, but don't even know that they need you. Yeah. It's almost like uh, this is not a religious reference, so please don't take it that way, but. I think of it really more like uh, the missionary who has to go out and seek out the unconverted. But the unconverted are those companies that don't know that there's a technology that can help them. And so Mm -hmm. you have to find resellers and partners that believe the same way that you do, that believe that finding those, that that the number one most important thing is to find customers you can help with your innovative technologies. And those, yeah. those partners are very rare. So I, I will just tell you that you know, that's, that's one of the most difficult things. You can't use models from the U.S. because in the U.S., if you already have a business that has, that has volume, then the resellers can, they can take orders and they, can, you know, they, they, don't have, they don't have to work hard to be evangelists for your, your technology. But in a new market like Europe or Asia, you have to find the ones that, that believe. Yep. 
Absolutely. So very interesting. So in the response that you gave me regarding the, the challenges, you don't mention the direct sales force or the direct people that you had to recruit. Is that because it was like a, a flawless process for you? Is it because you recruited people that you, you worked with in the past or people that you know were vetted? But is there a reason why you don't mention any challenge about actually finding those first I trust people on the ground in, in a new territory? No, it is a challenge. And I'll tell you that I, I didn't mention it only because I felt that, you know, when I took this challenge on, I needed to understand what the market was going to be like before I went out and found the people that, you know, we would be able to, we'd be able to, to use to grow the teams. And there's a reason for that. I believe very strongly that you build the team to support the mission, not the other way around. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people in Silicon Valley, a lot of companies see it the different, see it the other way. They basically say, well, let's just assemble a team and then let them, then let's figure out what we, what we should point them at. But I believe that, and I believe this even more and more after a number of different startup companies that I've been with over the years, that you, the first thing you start with is the fundamental problem that you're solving with your technology. The second thing that you look at is who is the customer that I'm helping with this? The third thing you look at is who's the person inside that customer who needs you? Right. Or it could be it could be several different groups, but you need to identify that person that you can make a hero out of if your technology works. The fourth thing you look at is how do they want my technology to be packaged so they can consume it? The fifth thing that you look at is how do they want to buy it? Who do they want to buy it from? What kind of a channel, you know, direct via the Web, a service, whatever that is. And then finally, you know, your channel, in other words, that last part. And then the last thing is the team. And it should be the last thing because you need to have all these other things sorted out before you build a team. Otherwise, you're building a team that may or may not fit the mission. And, you know, I I will say that I have, you know, I've been a chief revenue officer. I've been a a CEO. You know, I've been uh, I've been head of sales for kind of sales marketing business development for a number of startup companies. And even more now, after all this time, I believe this to be true, that you build the team appropriate to the mission. And so that's why, you know, when it came to hiring, I didn't really worry about it in the early time. I needed to understand the market. I needed to understand the mission. And then you go and you find people that you think are good, you know, are a good fit. And even when you feel like you have a good understanding of that, you could be wrong. I will say that, you know, I was wrong in the initial hires I made in Asia Pacific. Um, You know, the people that I hired there were not startup people. And that's, that's a critical thing when bringing somebody into the company that's a company at stage that I trust is at is they have to be flexible enough to deal with the, the challenges of what I call startup land. Um, mm-hmm. Because it's not the same as big companies where you have a lot of support and, and you have uh, you Absolutely. Know, uh, maybe uh, different expectations, et cetera. So. Absolutely. No, that's, that, that, that's very true. I mean, we've seen a case many times where individuals who have been very successful in a large organization with a structure <clears throat> around them arrive in a, a smaller organization where... You know, you need to you need to have the recruitment hat. You need to have the the channel hat. You need to be a direct sales person. You, you almost need to be a Swiss Army knife. You need to be ready. There will be a new challenge coming every day, and sometimes the challenge may be you know bringing some milk in the office or whatever it could be. It could be some silly things, but it's about it's about being ready to work very in autonomy. And I think that's very difficult in large organization. Because you've got a lot of support from different places. Okay. I've seen some people starting in Europe, you know, having to really do some nitty gritty stuff. And, and it takes a specific character to be able to do so. And, and definitely having the entrepreneurial or the 
having some management experience in the past can, can very, be very useful. We've also seen some up and coming, you know, kind of people that may never have proved themselves before in, in running an organization in Europe, but particularly in, in one of the endpoint company, one of the big ones. We've seen one guy that was coming from a, another startup just as one of the top sales guy, picking up his first VP EMEA role and being very successful. So I think it's a mix of both. Sometimes you may need to look at someone who's got the potential, the energy, and is hungry to, or she's hungry to prove herself or himself. And sometimes you need to have someone, or you could look at the second profile, which is that individual that has already done it in the past. But that's the reason why I ask you the question, because we know that it's a pain point for most of, most of our clients coming into Europe. And, and we've seen people mm-hmm. making, making, making the mistakes, which I don't think you should be ashamed of because it's, uh, it happens. At some point, you need to make a decision. The most important is to make sure that if you make the wrong decision, you can, uh, you can rectify it as quickly as possible. But look, Pat, that, that was very useful. I guess my next question to you is really around how do our listeners can get in touch with you if they want to discuss about high trust or they want to discuss some of your experience in Europe, APAC, and carrying the flag of high trust in this new territory in a, in a very successful way. So what is the best way to get in touch with you, Pat? Yeah, sure. So probably the best way is for them to email me uh, at pconte at hightrust.com, pconte at hightrust.com. And you know, if they want to reference this podcast, I heard you on the podcast or I'm interested to talk more about this particular subject. I'm always happy to talk to companies and you know, people that are looking to uh, enter markets and, and, and whatnot. I've done a lot of that kind of uh, consulting and those types of things in my past. And, and look, it's, it's not easy. Uh, and I think that ultimately, if you do one thing right in entering a new market as a company, it's to hire that first person, uh, hire the right first person. And you're right what you said, that they may need to be a Swiss Army knife. They may not ultimately be the person that grows and leads the organization, but they may be. And but the most important thing is they have to have that that mentality that we were talking about before. That sort of that uh, missionary mentality. And because you're going to, you know, you're going to hear a lot of no's. You're going to, you know, you're going to run into a lot of roadblocks that are just naturally put up for you. A lot of friction. And yep. but you can't let that stop you if you believe in what you're doing. If you believe that you can help customers with your innovative technology, then then you won't let that stop you. And and here's my analogy, right? You know, there's there's difference, you know, the, the, the missionary has really one thing that makes them different. And that is they do it for the mission, right? I mean, it, my Catholic school uh, nuns used to call it missionary zeal. So, and that's what missionaries do. They go out and because they believe that they're, they're there to help save people. And again, this isn't religious. This is about saving people technologically. But remember, uh, remember, if you're a crappy missionary, what happens to you? You get killed and eaten by the natives, right? I mean, that is so, so therefore missionaries are fearless because they don't, they, they don't think about the negative consequence because they're not there for a plus minus. They're there for the mission. And so when you hire people, you need to hire people that you believe feel this way. And, and look, lots of people think they do, but I like to test people before I hire them and say, look, you know, think about what this is going to be like when things are, are good, you know, and you're getting good response from customers and things are moving forward and you're all energized. And think about it when, when things are, are not as good. You know, will you, will you be able to keep your energy level up? Will you be able to make that next call? Will you be able to push through? Because the opportunities are there. And 
Europe in particular is a, a phenomenal market, and it is it's um, in many ways in many ways it's the best job in the company. I have to say, I really enjoy being over there. I enjoy talking to customers and, and prospects in all these different countries. I enjoy the you know the challenge, the sort of the puzzle of finding a way to fit how our innovative technology can help these companies that may not even know about it. And I like working with world-class customers. So, you know, it's, it's a great opportunity. I'm, I'm still excited about it, even after, even after the couple of years that have been, uh, you know, the heavy-duty spade work, if you will. But personally, I like building companies. And so when you pick somebody, you have to find somebody that is willing to do the, the hard work, is willing to do the, the manual labor of company building. And so, so in any case, that, that would be my, my, my last uh, maybe comment. And then I'm perfectly happy to, to talk to anybody who's interested, unless you're a direct competitor, in which case, if you buy me a drink, I might talk to you. <laughs> I'll say it's more like four or five <laughs> from my own personal experience, but there you go. Um, Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that was wonderful, Patrick. I mean, again, lots of insight. I, I like some of the analogy that you've used. I think it all makes sense. And yeah, I would encourage really anyone that may want to have a chat with someone and bounce some ideas, and but also looking at expanding a U.S. organization, or it could even be an Israeli vendor, or Asian vendor, but whoever vendor outside of Europe trying to come into the market. I know that you are very thorough when you looked at the different reseller, distributor, what model, vars, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, because we we actually spoke about it in length a few times. So I think they would really benefit from your experience. I would really encourage any of our listeners to to get in touch with you if they are looking at expanding geographically. But, you know, as of today, Pat, I really appreciate your time and insights. So thank you very much for today. And uh, yeah, as we discussed, hopefully I will see you soon in London for uh, one or two drinks. Yeah, looking forward to that. And uh, thanks so much for inviting me. I really enjoyed it. And, you know, uh, I'll just say uh, goodbye to all your uh, all your listeners. Thank you. Operatics has redefined the meaning of revenue generation for technology companies worldwide. While the traditional concepts of building and managing inside sales teams in-house has existed for many years, companies are struggling with a lack of focus, agility, and scale required in today's fast and complex world of enterprise technology sales. See how Operatics can help your company accelerate pipeline at operatics.net. You've been listening to B2B Revenue Acceleration. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.